Stephen Palmer's Hairy London. Episode 11. Yeah, right. Well, Gov, the knob's got us good and proper this time. The hair is designed to stop us moving about, see? So they can control us even better. Who are you people? Velvine asked, his curiosity piqued. I'm Bertrand Durrican, leader of the Marxist-Leninist Workers' Movement of London. Glad to make your acquaintance, Gov. Velvine nodded. He wanted to mention that he'd met Karl Marx the previous day, but realised that Bertrand might consider that an opportunistic lie. So he said, And what are your basic principles, eh? We follow Marx and Lenin. You ever heard of Lenin, Gov? Vaguely. Bertrand smiled, then laughed and shook his head. Oh, Gov, you've got some very tasty reading coming up. Lenin is the saviour, see? He's got a theory that he's going to bring down the Romanovs in Russia and hopefully the aristocratic government over here. Marx, you see, he pointed out that the working classes is oppressed, but Lenin, he took it one stage further, saying that the final stage of capitalism is imperialism. So we've got to bring down the knobs. Well, Velvine said, I think that uh, knobs might have a thing or two to say about that. You know any knobs, Gov? Uh, not me, no. Hmm... Only you sounded like you might. Velvine decided to change the subject. Why are you protesting outside King's Cross Station? Because some Romanovs is due here any minute, down from Balmoral or some such place of idle luxury. It's our duty to protest. I'd knife em if I could. Would you... Bertrand looked Velvine up and down for a while, then said, I'm going to do you a favour, Gov. Come with us back to our headquarters. You need some grub, some tea, and then some good solid reading. What do you say? Velvine shrugged. I suppose I could. I've nothing else to do. From the station entrance, a toffee landau emerged in which two figures could be seen glittering with jewels, as Velvine noted. The Marxist-Leninists threw stones and sacks of curious paint at the vehicle, which, resting on an inflated bag, sped off down Euston Road with little hindrance from the hair. That showed him, Bertrand observed. All right, everyone, fun over, back to Gordon Square. This is Velvine Orchard, a sculptor. He's interested in Marx and Lenin, so be polite to him. With some embarrassment, Velvine waved to the half-dozen protesters. Pertrand's headquarters was a dingy upper-floor flat, situated opposite the tree-strewn greenery of Gordon Square, an apartment in which lay a Marxist library, a number of living rooms and bedrooms, and a shared kitchen. The bathroom was a shed erected on the roof. Plumbing was rudimentary. This will be your home for a while, Gov, Pertrand said. It's basic, but it's all a human being needs. No need for golden opulence, is there? Plenty for all, if the confounded aristocracy would just share it out fairly. I know what you mean, Velvin said, nodding. He glanced at the others, settling down to tea and toast, and then said, I notice you have three women here. Yeah, women are part of the revolution, 
men and women are equal, as Marx and Lenin pointed out. But uh, politics is a man's job. You need to disabuse yourself of that idea as soon as maybe, Pertrand said. And don't go repeating it inside these walls. I can chuck you out, you know. Velvine felt uncomfortable. A woman's place was in the world of women. Everything else was the world of men. He decided to use Pertrand for a brief time, get himself back on his feet, then move on. Bedward's house lay less than a mile away. This afternoon I'm going out on a scouting mission, Pertrand said, to a hidden factory using cheap labour. You should come, Gov. Velvine nodded, just this once. It's not situated too far away, Pertrand continued, so the hare won't make the walk impossible. Grafton Place by Euston Station it is. A small track, Velvine replied, recalling tracks of his own that had stretched for hundreds of miles across jungle and desert. After a luncheon of mouldy cheese on toast and weak tea, Velvine and Pertrand departed the flat and headed north. Velvine said as little as possible, not wanting to give his Belgravia background away, but also hoping to entice hints from Pertrand as to what his intentions were for the group. Bring down the aristocracy, Pertrand said. Simple enough. By any means, Gov, know what I mean? We got all sorts of plans. Maybe one day I'll let you into a few little Marxist-Leninist secrets, depending on how well you serve the cause. Serve the cause, eh? I can see in your eyes. You hate them as much as me. Velvine said nothing. He hated his family, of course. The Grafton Place factory stood in a yard hidden behind a mercantile row. Small windows piercing high brick walls, one great chimney belching smoke, and one great door, strengthened with steel. Upon the main gate, a plate. Blackanor Developments. Private property. No admittance. Private property, Bertrand chuckled. We know what Marx has to say about that, don't we, Gov? I certainly do, Velvine replied. What do we do now? Climb round the back. I want to see how the master works his crew. Gonna make it front-page report on the next Marxist-Leninist Times. Tomorrow, with a bit of luck. Go on, Gov. Quite like, else the dogs will hear us. Tiptoeing through mud, discarded paper and mats of hair, the pair rounded the factory to see a high wall behind a tall chain-link fence. That wall can be climbed, Bertrand observed. See, they put stays out to hold up the sheds round this side. Reckon we could jump across to them, then crawl along and shin up that drainpipe. You could be correct, Velvine agreed, recalling a similar situation at the Brown Temple of Berber time. He sized up the leap. It may be done, I reckon, but we must hurry, eh? Like skulking squirrels, the pair clambered up the fence, jumped up the nearest stay, a two-yard leap not for the faint-hearted, then crawled over to the wall and the drainpipe. Velvine, his confidence increasing, took the lead for the climb, explaining to Pertrand the safest way of ascending. Sheesh, I'm impressed, Gov. At the top of the drainpipe, Velvine leaned across and clambered upon a wide sill, shuffling along so that Pertrand could follow. 
a hundred foot drop below, the wind whistling around his ears. He turned to look through the window and was astonished at what he saw. It was indeed a sight of cheap labour. Hundreds of partially clad natives sat at steaming machines, all of which produced something familiar to Velvine. Soft leather undergarments. It's a sweat factory, Bertrand said. Forced labour, cheap labour, immigrant labour. Velvine felt sick. He had no idea the standard undergarment of the suicide club, indeed of so many gentlemen's clubs, was produced in this way. But then he saw something so shocking he almost fell off the sill. It was the master of the factory, and that master was Lord Blackenor. Estatia Weatherby, though a housewife, was no shrinking violet. As a girl, she'd been one of the rhododendron mob, who'd rallied a groundswell of public opinion in Mumbai so that the rule of the Kohinoor Raja could be peacefully overthrown. Later, refusing to be married, she ran away with a British gentleman who fell in love with her, and she with him, travelling in a rude schooner all the way to London, where they settled. That gentleman was Cornucope Weatherby. For a while they were happy and in love, but years of marriage in a society where only men were allowed to be active dulled her senses, mothballed her mind, and enlarged her body. Fires started to burn low, though she had hardly turned forty. The appearance of hairy London set a spark to tinder. With Cornucope at her side, she felt a hint of the rhododendron mob stalwart that once she'd been, though she was less fit and he had grey hair. And she was determined not to miss the opportunity given to her by Lord Bland Hubble. So they stood now at the edge of Kew Gardens, the sun low upon the horizon, setting into a haze of orange clouds, the air cool, the locale quiet. Swathes of fine brunette hair swished along the queue road in the evening breeze. What do you make of the place? Cornucope asked her. Estatia put away the monocular. Many Hindu people, all working. Some make vehiculars with long legs. Some make miniature machinoras. Other make coal-powered scissors. They've got large stocks of anthracite, which is a worry and I'm sure I can smell paraffin. Do you see any way of getting inside the gardens themselves? Estatia pointed to a section of the outer fence where a non-pareil tree grew. Do you see how a long branch bows low to the ground on our side? I think we could climb that branch, drop down on the other side, then hide until dark behind the carnivorous plant's house. This plan they followed settling for a couple of hours in a thicket of soft black hair, through which chamomile daisies grew like exploding stars in a nebulous sky. Lord Blantubble had given them a method of keeping in touch, a miniature postbox painted red, which Eustatia kept in her handbag. On a scrap of paper she wrote, By Richmond Circus, have penetrated Kew Gardens, Indo workforce hard at it, manufacturing devices of transport, all here is frenetic activity, E and KW. 
Folding this slip and sealing it with a dab of elephant wax, she took out one of the books of stamps given to her by Lord Blandhubble. Use second class, Cornucope advised. First class is only for urgent messages. She nodded, sticking a second class stamp on the folded slip, taking out the postbox and popping the note through the letterbox hole. In seconds, she knew her letter would be inside the postbox beside Blandhapple's desk at the Foreign Office. When they judged the night to be dark enough, they crept out from behind the building and tiptoed through the mixture of hair and grass that covered the old deer park at the southern end of Kew Gardens. They had to avoid numerous carnivorous plants, sundews the size of footballs, pitchers like wells, and fly traps hanging on vines that hissed like snakes. In the dark, this was not easy, and it slowed their progress. Activity to the north was restricted to a few workshops showing yellow turmeric lanterns, the occasional sound of a hammer on metal or an Urdu curse. Crouched low behind a vexatious tree near one of these workshops, Eustacia listened to the conversations. What does that mean? Cornucope asked her. How's it going? Tic-tac. Very well. Kaipat meri madad ka sakte hing. Can you help me? Musha tande ba di jenga. Please give me a cold beer. Eustacia <laughs> sniffed, then added, I can smell gulab jamun. These men must be Bengali, which means they're lazy. No wonder they're drinking beer and eating sweets on duty. Yes, yes, and perhaps we can use that against them. Cornucope said. Come along, dearest one. We need to locate Gandhi's headquarters. My guess is that it'll be in the centre of the gardens, out of sight of the roads. They explored further, and half an hour later spotted a glasshouse surrounded by noose trees, whose soft and luxuriant feather leaves concealed much of the structure. Eustacia took out her monocular again to see that the glasshouse was vast as long as a railway platform at Eustonia, with a roof as high, all manner of walkways and wrought-iron spiral staircases filling the upper reaches. Lower down, the place was crammed with verdancy. This might be it, she said. I see men walking along gangways, carrying nightlights. I see notice boards amongst the plants on which maps have been pinned. We could try to sneak in. Cornucope suggested. Eustacia studied the darker southern end of the glasshouse. The nerve centre is to the north, she said. There are many doors further away, though. I'm sure we could get inside without being seen. Are there any guards? None. Gandhi must feel secure here. Kew Gardens is a labyrinth of horticultural borders, carnivorous plants and hair. He's returned to this country many times. Cornucope observed, and must think that the government has gone soft on him. We shall put a stop to that misapprehension. You've been listening to Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. Music